Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. Lord, we thank you for your great mercy to all of us. Thank you for the joy to be able to study together First Peter 3. Lord, I, I pray that you may help us all to be near to you. Forgive us of our sins, Lord. Help us to have clarity of mind, to understand your word, and to apply it. Lord, I pray that you may give me clarity as I speak, strength, passion, power, the authority of your word, and, and may this be a profitable time. May people be saved, and may we all be encouraged in Jesus. For we pray in his name. Amen. 62,000. The number of heat-related deaths in Europe last year with the hottest summer on record. 930,000. The number of U.S. legal abortions, also known as murders of children in their mother's womb. A million and 93,000. The number of Christians martyred between 2000 and 2010. 322. The number of Christians killed for their faith every month. So evil and suffering are all around us, in the church and outside. Why? True Christians suffer as well in many ways. Some of us have lost loved ones. Some of us are sick and afflicted. Some of us are suffering solitude as singles. Some of us are in a marriage with an unbelieving spouse. And it's hard. Some of us have unbelieving relatives and acquaintances that really hate us and mistreat us because of Jesus. Some of us lost a job, a promotion, a relationship, an opportunity because of our testimony of Jesus. And all of us suffer in many ways. Why? And more importantly, how can we press on? How can we go on? How can we live our life passionately for Jesus Christ. Well, Peter today has the answer for us in a message that he wrote to the church 2,000 years ago. He wrote about Christian suffering. As we heard last week from RJ, suffering is the will of God. It is what it says in 1 Peter 3. You can turn there, verse 17. That's the context of the passage that we will see today, verses 18 through 22. It says, For it is better to suffer for doing good, if it should be God's will, than for doing evil. It is the will of God in one sense that there is suffering in the world, because if it was not, then the world would still be like the Garden of Eden that God created in Genesis 1 and 2. So in some sense, that's His will. And in Genesis, uh, and we see that God is sovereign because in Psalm 115, verse 3, we have uh, the text that says, Our God is in the heavens and He does whatever He pleases. He's in heaven, He does whatever He wants. And in Genesis, when, when Adam and Eve sinned, God looked at Adam and He said, Cursed is the ground, cursed is the ground because of you. And later on, in Genesis 5.29, we read, quote, that the ground that the Lord has cursed. We, we read about the ground that the Lord has cursed. So God has punished them. 
And just like Jesus, when he was walking one day, and he saw a tree, a fig tree, and it was not bearing fruit, and he cursed it. And a few moments later, the tree had withered. In the same way, after sin, God cursed the universe, and right now, we are where we are because this is the justice of God. And in Romans 5, 12, and 14, it says that when Adam sinned, think of a bowl of water being our universe. It's like black ink, death, that entered into the universe and permeated everything. And so now, sin and death are everywhere. That's because of the first sin. And it extends to us because we also have sinned. But you see, God was not surprised. It was not as if God had a plan A and it came to ruin, so he came up with something else. That was his plan all along. He decreed that it would happen, and in fact, he also predestined the solution to sin, suffering, and death. The sermon is entitled, Jesus, Our Gospel Ark in the Suffering. In suffering, in the midst of suffering, Jesus is our ark. So the main idea that Peter is getting at in this passage is that we have one sufficient reason to suffer for the will of God, and that's the gospel. Please turn to 1 Peter 3, and we will start to read in verse 18. As you turn there, you remember perhaps that Peter once said that Paul says things that are hard to understand. Well, today, Peter really has a hard one for us too, so... We'll, we'll try to see what he says. Verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers, having been subjected to him. So my goal today is to explain the meaning of that text, the meaning that God intended, not what we think it means at first glance, the meaning that God intended. And I will provide you some reasons to navigate the difficult questions of interpretation. So first of all, what is this passage all about? And the answer is, it's all about Jesus. And it's also about triumphing in suffering. And so that's the answer that uh, Peter brings. You see, in verse 18, it says, for or because Jesus also suffered. In verse 17, it says, it is the will of God that you suffer while doing good. And then he gives a reason. What's the reason? Verse 18, because Jesus also suffered, died, and has accomplished our salvation. So here you have it. The answer to our suffering is the gospel. And Peter provides four parts, and that will be our outline. Part number one, verse 18, Christ suffered. Part number two, verses 19 and 20, Christ preached. Part three, Christ baptized and raised. 
that's verse 21, and verse 20, Christ reigns. So that sounds familiar, isn't it? That's the gospel. That's the gospel. Soul-suffering Christians are asking why and how can I go on? And Peter says, you have one sufficient reason to keep going on, and that's the gospel. That's the gospel. And this message is really all around that section. Next week, Pastor Gabe is going to preach on 1 Peter 4.1, and verse 1 says, sure enough, since therefore Christ suffered, connecting to what he is discussing that we will see today, since Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking, verse 2, so as to live for the rest of the time for the will of God. So those, this is bookending our passage, suffering for the will of God. And what's the motivation? The gospel. So let's begin. Part 1, Christ suffered, that's verse 18. And we will see that we are on Good Friday. And as we walk through the four parts, we will be walking from Friday to Saturday to Sunday and up to this very day today. Christ also suffered. Jesus is God. Therefore, be amazed. People say, how can there be a God with all the suffering in the world? And Peter says, God also suffered. Think about that. It's amazing. Consider the goodness and the nearness of God, that he would come on this earth and suffer for our salvation. Christianity is unique among all the religions of the world. It's the only true religion where man does not come to God by suffering and trying to appease God on his own. No, it is God who came down and who suffered for us. Christ also suffered. Some Christians I've talked to, they say things like this at the end of the service. Oh boy, we heard about the gospel today. I already knew that. It's for unbelievers. Not so. Peter says you need the gospel to keep going on. The gospel is the all-sufficient comfort for your soul, the all-sufficient strength for your life to live zealous for God. And that's what Peter does. He says, you want to suffer while doing good? Look to Jesus. He also suffered. He was raised. He has complete victory over demons and everything. And that's what he says. He is now reigning. Amazing. And in the book of Hebrews, we hear, Look to Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith, who for the joy set before him endured the suffering, the shame, the su everything, the cross, because he knew that in the end there will be the crown. The text also says once. He suffered once. The passage emphasizes the aspect that, unlike Old Testament priestly sacrifices that were always to be repeated day by day and year by year, Jesus suffered once. Hebrews 7, 27, He has no need, that is Jesus, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. So stop looking back, trying to fix what, what happened, trying to somehow atone for your sins. You cannot, and this is useless. Jesus died once. He provides the all-sufficient sacrifice to atone for your sins, and they are no more. You have eternal redemption. The Bible says also for sins. He suffered for sins. You see, at some point, there will be someone who has to suffer for your sins. Numbers 32, 23 says... Be sure of this, your sin will find you out. 
at some point, because we're all sinners, we have to think about that. Who is going to suffer for my sins? Will I suffer forever in hell for my sins? Or do I believe that Jesus died for my sins? Because the punishment for sin is spiritual death, which is separation from God. But the text goes on and says, it talks about substitution. So it says, Jesus was substituted or exchanged. It says, the righteous for the unrighteous. So why did Jesus come as a baby on the earth and then spent 30 years in anonymity and then for three years he started his public ministry and died at age 33? Why not come and live one day and die and it's over? And the answer is because he had to fulfill all righteousness. That is to live the perfect life under the Mosaic law and obey all the commandments of God, to be the only righteous person on planet earth after Adam. Peter said to the Jews in Acts 3.14, you rejected the holy and righteous one. You see, there is no one like Jesus. He's the righteous one, perfect in every way. And that's why he could be the all-sufficient sacrifice for my sins. But Jesus is not just one man dying for another man. He is the God-man. He is the Son of God, infinite in value, and so therefore he can die for all those who trust in him. That's just the glorious doctrine that's known as penal substitutionary atonement. You should know that. People deny it today, many people. Penal substitutionary atonement. Penal just means law, legal. Jesus died because it was the legal demand of, of God's law. That was what God wanted. Substitutionary means that there was a substitution. And so, he died in my place. And atonement means that he erases all my sins. This is called the great exchange. The holy and righteous one dies in the place of sinners like you and I. And today... The only way you can be accepted by God is if God sees in you Jesus because you have faith in him and that's why Jesus was punished on the cross because when he was looking at Jesus, he saw all my sin, all your sin, if you believe in him. And so we see that the text goes on to say that he might bring us to God. So that's the often neglected part of the gospel. People think that being a Christian is believing in Jesus, so now... I can do whatever I want, and then I'll go to heaven. Not so. The gospel is that we are separated from God, and Jesus brings us back to the Father so we can spend our life for him right now and for all eternity. The gospel brings you to God. And God, he is the beginning and the end of the gospel because God is the gospel in Christ. Then next it talks about physical death and spiritual death. It says that Jesus was put to death in the flesh but made alive in the spirit. We, are, we come to our first challenging section. What does it mean that Jesus was made alive? Some people say it means the physical resurrection by the Holy Spirit, but this is incorrect. The text actually speaks of a spiritual resurrection of Jesus' human spirit. Here is why. So the text doesn't say Jesus was put to death in the flesh and made alive in the flesh. The text does not say he died physically 
and he was raised spiritually. Of course, we know Jesus was raised. That's true, but that's not the point of that verse. The text contrasts the flesh and the spirit, the, what happened on, in the body of Jesus and what happened in his soul or spirit. That's the same thing in the Bible. John MacArthur comments, the phrase made alive in the spirit refers to the life of Jesus' spirit, not the Holy Spirit. There is no article in the Greek to indicate that Peter was referring to the Holy Spirit. Next, we see in verse 19 that it says, he was made alive in his human spirit in which he went. He went where? To talk to spirits in a spiritual place. He was still disembodied. He was still uh, a soul that's alive but with no body. And then the flow of the passage really shows that Jesus is raised only in verse 21. Now, that's very interesting, isn't it? Because it brings up fascinating insights into what Jesus did and who we are. The fact that it says that Jesus was made alive in his human spirit, that does mean that he was dead in his human spirit so as to be made alive, does it not? So, we are not just material beings. We are made of a material body and an immaterial soul. When someone dies, the body is there, motionless and lifeless. The person is gone. The person, the soul, the spirit has gone back to God. That's death, biblically. It's not that any of those two parts have ceased to exist. The atoms are still there. The soul still, ex still exists with God. But now, the body is separated from the soul. That's physical death. When the spirit lives the, the body. And Spiritual death is when the soul is separated from God. Physical death, soul separated from the body. Spiritual death, soul separated from God. Jesus said, do not fear people who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Kill, fear God who can kill both. And so both can die, but it's not about cessation of existence. It's about separation. So Jesus was spiritually dead on the cross. He was separated from the Father. And that's why he said in Matthew 27, 46, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Going back to the theme of suffering in the universe and the curse that we discussed at the beginning, in Galatians 3.13, it says this, that Christ became, quote, a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on the tree. So while in Genesis, God looked at Adam and said, cursed is the ground because of you, it is as if on the cross, God was looking to the disciples and he said, cursed is my son because of you. And you see, it says in heaven that there is no accursed thing. In heaven, there is just blessing. And Jesus, when he was cursed by God for you and I, he was separated from God. He was dead spiritually. That's incredible. That's why Jesus feared with sweats of blood in the Garden of Gethsemane, the one who can kill both the body and the soul because he died physically and spiritually, not as a cessation of existence, but he was separated from God when he bore all the wrath and curse of God for our sins. He was separated and forsaken so that rejoice, suffering saint, you will never be separated from God and never forsaken. He was cursed so that you will never be cursed. You have forever all the 
amazing inheritance that is incorruptible in heaven with all the spiritual blessings in Christ. And finally, on the cross, Jesus prayed to the Father. He committed into the Father's hand his spirit, and he was made alive. He was made alive. So we move on to part number two, moving on from Good Friday to Holy Saturday. Sometimes it's called the Holy Saturday Theology, where we will see that Christ preached, verses 19 and 20. So that's a very difficult passage. Many Christians disagree. And so, you know, people will have different views about certain sections. And I will explain what this passage means in my conviction. It's about Jesus making a proclamation, a sermon or preaching. Jesus was made alive in the Spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. So many questions come out of this text about this proclamation. How did Jesus do this? We just saw it. He did it in his disembodied spirit. But to whom? And we will see he actually proclaimed something to demons. Where? Christ preached from Hades, the realm of the dead. When? Between Good Friday and Sunday morning, sometimes called Holy Saturday. What? A proclamation of victory. And why? Because these angels, they had sinned back in the days of Noah. So to whom and why? Christ preached to demons because they sinned. So the text says, to the spirits in prison. The expression spirits in the New Testament, it always refers to disembodied beings, either human beings or angelic beings. And in Hebrews, the only occurrence really that's uh, referring to human beings uh, occurs in Hebrews 12, 23, and it talks about heaven where you have the spirits of just men made perfect. But in 99% of the cases, whenever you hear about spirits, it's about angels or demons. And that's just like us when we talk in English, we talk about spirits. And so... Typically, you would see references to spirits as evil spirits, unclean spirits who rebel against God and Christ. And this is what we naturally have here, where First Peter uh, mentions the spirits in prison who disobeyed. See a far cry from heaven here. So the text talks about the days of Noah. And that is not to say that the preaching happened there. It did not. You have to come up with additional words in the translation to make that even possible, such as now. The text says it is mentioned because the, the cause is mentioned in verse 20. The proclamation to these demons was, quote, because they formerly, you see, it's not the same time. It's way before. Way before they disobeyed, therefore he preached. They formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah. So it must have been pretty terrible what these angels did, what these demons did, so that God would lock them up in a prison. So please turn to Genesis 6. We will look at a couple of verses that Pastor Grady read earlier. Genesis 6, verse 1. When men began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were attractive, and they took as wives any they chose. Verse 4, the Nephilim 
were on the earth in those days and also afterward, when the sons of God came in to the daughters of men and they bore children to them. So the expression sons of God in the Bible, it, in, the New, in the Old Testament, it always refers to angels. It is mentioned in Job 1.6, Job 2.1, and 38.7, where there are demons coming with Satan to talk to God or angels praising God during creation week. So the language dictates that we see these sons of God as angels. Please take a look at uh, Luke 20, 36. Luke 20, verse 36. And as you turn there, I'll note that the text talks about men, the daughters of men, and the sons of God. You see the contrast. There is the daughters of men who are women, and they are the sons of God who are angels. In Luke 20, 36, we learn that in the resurrection, people, quote, cannot die anymore because they are equal to angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. So when we will be raised, we will be like angels and we will have the title sons of God. So this title is used for angel-like beings, and of course, in that case, those are angels. So it's amazing. In Genesis 6, we have angels going out and chasing after women. It's incredible. It really is. And the text even says that they bore children to them. So we can see that in two possible ways. Number one is that the demons, they basically possessed males, and they had this demonic possession, and they had children. And the second way is really to really think what we know about angels and to see that in the Bible, angels, sometimes they go out and they eat food or they fight against people and they kill them. You know, so it must be physical. And they were even sometimes going into the house of someone and the New Testament says that people exercise hospitality to an angel without even realizing it. So they look like human beings, every bit of it, so as to fool people, you see. Now, of course, it does say that holy angels in heaven are not given in marriage and cannot have sexual relationships in Matthew 22, 30. But here we're not talking about angels in heaven. We're talking about angels who fell from heaven and rebelled against God and they committed sexual sin. And that's why they were sent to prison. Now, Peter further says that God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared. And then he talks about eight people and then the deluge. Now, we learn a few things here. Peter believed in a literal person of Noah. Peter believed that there was a global flood that destroyed all the earth. And there was a giant 500 feet long ark that had 1,700 animal kinds and about 6,000 plus animals on board. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? That's how we are here today. That's how the population of the earth grew again. So, are you a creationist who reads the book of Genesis and says, I believe it. The Holy Spirit was a creationist. He is a creationist, and so should you. So where? We see that Christ went to Hades, and he preached in the prison of the abyss, where demons are locked up. So this prison is called the abyss. The Greek word that's found in Peter, it's used in Revelation 20, and that's where the devil will be locked up for a thousand years when Christ returns and establishes his kingdom for a thousand years. If you turn, please, to Jude, verses 6 and 7, we hear more about that, that time. Jude 6 and 7. And the angels 
who did not keep their proper position of authority, but abandoned their proper dwelling, talking about angels who left heaven and disobeyed God, these he has kept in darkness, bound with everlasting chains for judgment of the great day. Now watch this. In a similar way, he just talked about the angels who left heaven, and he says in a similar way, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding towns gave themselves up to sexual immorality and perversion. They serve as an example to those who suffer the punishment of eternal fire. So Jude says that in a similar way, the angels who left heaven and sinned, in a similar way, Sodom and Gomorrah committed sexual perversion. In Genesis 6, angels went after women. And in Genesis 19, the men of Sodom and Gomorrah went after angels. And God hates it so much. You know why? Because it's an attack on marriage. The very image of God's union with his people, which is the whole crux of history. So when the angels decided to just go against the very purpose of God's history, he was mad and he locked them up in this prison. Please turn to 2 Peter chapter 2. We'll see another passage that helps us understand what Peter means in the first letter. 2 Peter 2. For, for if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but sent them to hell, I'll pause right here. The Greek term is Tartarus. It's basically an allusion to the Greek mythology where the lowest part of hell was situated and then the enemies of the gods were locked up. And so Peter uses that term that people were familiar with and he says, this part, yes, the bottom this is where these angels have been locked up. Because, of course, there is some truth to that. And so he just says, this is true. This is where the angels are. Putting them in chains of darkness to be held for judgment. He did not spare the ancient world when he brought the flood on its ungodly people, but protected Noah. See, he just talked about the angels in the same breath. He talks about Noah. It's all Genesis 6. A preacher of righteousness with seven others. And then he condemned the Sodom and Gomorrah uh, because of her, their ungodly behavior. So, of course, that's a difficult um, study. So let me show you a few verses that demonstrate that Jesus went to Hades, to the realm of the dead. Please turn to Romans chapter 6, verses 6 and 7. Romans chapter 6, chapter 10, verses 6 and 7. So it says this. But the righteousness based on faith says, do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven. That is to bring Christ down. So that's a reference to the ascension of Jesus from the earth to heaven. Or, verse 7, who will descend into the abyss. That is to bring Christ up from the dead. So obviously this is implying that Christ was there at some point and that's the whole reason why he makes this argument. Just like Christ is in heaven now. And then in Matthew 12, 40, there's Jonah. And Jesus is preaching, and he says, For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the whale, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So somewhere inside the earth, in a metaphorical, metaphorical sense, remember it's a spiritual realm, Jesus was there for three days. And then in Ephesians 4, verses 8 and 9, we read, Therefore, it says, when Jesus ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. 
saying he ascended, what does it mean? But that he had also descended into the lower regions of the earth. See again. So Jesus went into Hades, and at the time, Luke 16 explains, it was like people would die, and they would go in the earth, and there were two sections. One was uh, the bosom of Abraham, also known as paradise, where people were comforted, and the other one was the suffering place, where you had also in the lower parts the abyss and the demons. And, and Jesus descended into the lower regions. That's what we, we see in those three references. And then Peter preached in Acts 2.31, and he's quoting Psalm 16, and he said, you remember, David? He actually, quote, foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. So he's saying Jesus didn't stay in the ground so as to decay. He was raised, and he did not stay in Hades, i.e., he was there, but he was at some point resurrected, but he did go there. Now, of course, this is not to say that Jesus suffered in hell. He did not. He went there as a victor to make a proclamation of victory. And that's the next question. What did he do? Well, he preached. He proclaimed. If you look at Colossians 2.15, we have fascinating insights about what happened at the cross. So basically, Jesus is there for some time. And what does he do? He preaches. He is preaching. He makes a sermon of complete victory and doom against the forces of evil. And in Colossians 2.15, it says that God disarmed the rulers and authorities. That's the reference to the uh, devilish powers. And put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Christ. And the Berean Standard Bible puts it this way. He made a public spectacle of the demons triumphing over them in the cross. And so at the cross, when Jesus was separated from the Father, he had the highest suffering. There was his greatest triumph, where the demons thought, that's it, we killed the Son of God, we won. And Jesus says, not so fast. He goes and he preaches and he says, you are in open shame, you are shamed. And it's an allusion to the Romans at the time, when they would come back from a victory they would have the, the prisoners of war in chain, and they would have a procession, and they would, they would say, we won. Here is the proof. And Jesus, he went to Hades, and he proclaimed to the demons and all the forces of evil who were in this pit, and he said, I have conquered everything. You see how beautiful this is? This is just marvelous that Jesus is having just such a victory over Satan, and even looking at the whole Bible, we see that he destroyed the power of the devil. And he, looking at Ephesians 4, he says he liberated captives. And in Hebrews 11, it says that they were spirits of just men made perfect. But before that, it's, it talks about the Old Testament saints. And it says these could not be made perfect until us. And so one way to interpret that, that will be my way. We cannot be dogmatic, but that's certainly what I believe the text explains with the different references, is that people who died until the time of Jesus, they were in the bosom of Abraham in this paradise, but they could not be made perfect just yet. And so when Jesus went to Hades, he took all these saints, Adam and Moses and all of them, and then when he ascended, he took all those captives and then he freed them. And now paradise is where Jesus is. And that's in heaven, and that's where he is. And that's what he did. It's just, it's just incredible and beautiful. And we move from part one, Good Friday, the suffering, to part two, the preaching on Saturday. 
And we go to part three, Christ baptized and raised, and that's Resurrection Sunday. We keep reading in verse 21, baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. Not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Christ. Again, difficult verse, controversial verse, all kinds of questions, so here are the questions. What baptism is Peter talking about? Is it a physical, wet water baptism? Or is it a spiritual, dry baptism of some kind? What does it mean that we are saved by baptism? We know. No actions actually save us. So what is that all about? The text says baptism now corresponds to this. But to what exactly? And what is the point of the removal of dirt and the good conscience? And what does that have anything to do with what he has been discussing? Right? So first we discuss what kind of baptism is that? And the answer is he's not talking about water baptism. Reason number one. Peter plainly says that he does not mean water baptism. He says not the removal of dirt from the body, which is what water does. It's not about an outward cleansing. Reason number two, the original Greek, baptisma, means immersion. So today you hear baptism, you immediately think about water, but in the Greek, baptism just means to be immersed. And you could be immersed in all kinds of things. You could be immersed into water, you could be immersed into the Holy Spirit, baptism of the Holy Spirit. You could be immersed into fire. Matthew 3, it's actually a reference to being immersed into the fire of hell for those who refuse Christ. And then we have, if you turn to Romans chapter 6, we have yet another one, which is to be baptized or immersed into Christ's death. That is to be united in Jesus in his death. So please turn to Romans chapter 6, Verses uh, 3 and 4, it says this, Do you not know that all of us have been baptized into Christ and that we were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death. So that's what 1 Peter 3.21 is about. It's about being baptized into the death of Jesus, immersed, united with Jesus in his death. Christ was baptized in death, and so are we in him. It's a dry, metaphorical baptism. Reason number three, Peter says that this baptism now saves you. That's what it says. You know, people take that verse and they say, look, Peter says baptism saves. So they come up with this heresy, which is called baptismal regeneration. They say you have to be baptized, otherwise you cannot go to heaven. The thief on the cross that went to heaven would disagree. But uh, you see, baptism doesn't save the water baptism. But here is the problem. If you want to put water baptism right there, it says it saves. You cannot get around it. You can say, but see, it says through the resurrection, you're still saying you have to get wet so that the resurrection applies to you. And that's heresy. You might think, well, it's no big deal. What's the problem to say that? Paul says in Galatians 1 that there were false Christians who were saying, yes, faith in Jesus but you must be circumcised. And he's saying you cannot add anything to the gospel of grace alone by faith alone. If you do, it's heresy. And so it is definitely not possible that it is water baptism. What it is is spiritual baptism when you are regenerated because you die with Jesus and you are raised to new life. That's what the Bible says being born again. And you see, it says baptized, saved, 
through the resurrection. And in 1 Peter 1.3, it says, you've been born again through the resurrection. It's just another way of saying it. He's saying you've been born again by the death and resurrection of Jesus. So we ask, what is this spiritual baptism in Christ corresponding to? And the answer is, it corresponds to the Ark of Noah. The text corresponds to, in the Greek, is antitupos. That means antitype. So that's what's called in theology, typology. So typology is actually quite simple. It's when an Old Testament event or person is a copy or shadow of something that Jesus will do in the New Testament. And so, for example, you would have the sacrifice of the Passover lamb. That was a copy. That was a shadow. And then Jesus came, and 1 Corinthians 5, 7 says, Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. So that was the copy, and this is the reality. It was like a living prophecy, if you will. It was pointing to Jesus. And so here, it says that baptism is the antitype of Noah. So Noah was the copy, the ark of Noah was the copy, and Jesus is the true ark that saves not just eight people, but all those who trust in him. That's why I put the title, Jesus, our gospel ark during suffering. That's really the picture that he gives. Like a good preacher, he goes to the one thing, and he says, Jesus is our ark. And we see the typology in several ways. The ark had one door, and when Noah got in, God shut the door behind him. And did you know that the ark actually landed on a particular day on Mount Ararat? We learn about that in Genesis 8.4. It landed three days after what would later be called the Feast of Passover. When, she, when the, the lamb was sacrificed, three days later, as far as the dates were concerned, the ark landed. So it's a picture of Jesus dying, and then at the end, the ark saves, and we can all come out of the tomb or the ark. It's just amazing. And here we see two more reasons why it's not water baptism. Noah did not get wet. He was completely dry in the ark. And reason number five, and that's really the, the, the greatest one, water baptism, is that a copy? Is that a shadow? Or is that the reality of salvation? You tell me. It's a shadow. Water baptism is a picture of us dying with Jesus and being raised. It's a precious, precious symbol we have as Christians, but it's a copy. So if you say it's water baptism, here is how you are presenting the thing. You're saying there was a copy, the ark, and it points to another copy. But that cannot be. That's not how typology works. There was a copy, the ark, and there is Jesus, the reality. And so we see here that it's, again, it's all about Jesus protecting us in the suffering. And so here is how this spiritual baptism in Jesus, in Jesus' death, works. It's not an outward cleansing of water. It's an inward cleansing of regeneration. And how can you see that? There is a faith response. And Peter calls it this way. He says you have a, the response or an appeal to God for a good conscience. That's when you stop fighting against God and your God-given conscience and confess that you are a sinner and you have no hope and you are without God in the world and you realize your misery without Christ. Just like at the time of Noah, you realize that you are lost and you hopelessly need to get in the ark. 
Noah built the ark for 120 years, as people lived longer back then. But in your case, I can guarantee you, you will not have that long. In fact, you don't even know if you will be alive tomorrow. So repent. Repent and believe. Trust in Jesus. You have to get on board. Do not miss the boat. Jesus is your ark of salvation for today. Repent and believe in him right now. Why wait? He suffered for you. He suffered in a baptism of death, in the flood of God's judgment, so that you would not have to be baptized in the fire of hell forever. So come to him right now. Do not delay. He is a good and merciful Savior, and he will be your ark of salvation and safety and serenity for all your life. You do not need more information. You need to make an appeal to God for a good conscience. Right now, Jesus is the only way to be saved from the wrath of God. We saw first that Christ suffered on Friday. He preached on Holy Saturday. He was baptized and raised specifically on Sunday. And now he reigns, even today. 1 Peter 3.22 Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. In this last verse, we see first that there is tremendous encouragement after the suffering there is the comfort there is the hope jesus after a, a life of suffering and trials he has gone to god and he is comforted right now he exchanged the cross of suffering for the crown of glory remember romans 8:18 8, our present sufferings are not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed secondly we see that jesus is now the king. Jesus reigns. He's at the right hand of God, the position of authority and power, and he's the king of all angels and authorities and powers. Gill notes that angels refers to both good and bad angels, and then the authorities refer to kings, princes, governors of this world who, in his word, hold their dominions from and under the Lord Jesus Christ, and which is an argument why believers should patiently bear all their sufferings and afflictions since Christ has the government in his hand and he rules and overrules all things for good and when he pleases he can put a stop to the rage and persecutions of men. Wow. Jesus is the king of Satan and demons and everything. No angels or demon can hurt you. You have the Holy Spirit inside of you and he's greater than Satan and now you have this triumph in Jesus. And he who was made a little lower than the angels in the incarnation, now, even in his humanity, he is now higher than angels and he has all authority. And this is amazing. He's your king. He's my king. And he has triumphed out of the suffering and so will you. To conclude, we saw that Jesus is our gospel ark during suffering. We have one sufficient reason to suffer for the will of God. And that's the gospel of Jesus. The gospel is for you today. To be saved from the flood of the anger of God by entering into the ark of salvation, which is Jesus alone. You must repent of your sins and have a good conscience before God. Come to him right now. Acknowledge that you are bankrupt and you need to be metaphorically baptized with Jesus in his death so that you can have a new life and change. However, the gospel is also for Christians every day. Peter made us look to Jesus who suffered, 
who preached the victory, who was made alive physically and spiritually. And he was raised and ascended to heaven to reign at the right hand of God. Jesus suffered and triumphed, and we will triumph in him. You can also imitate him in so many ways. You can suffer to bring people to God. You can do that. You can proclaim this victory of Jesus to your neighbors. And uh, you will be one day also comforted. The suffering and triumph of Jesus for our salvation is sufficient daily motivation for us to continue in our faith. For we will also reign with him and cast our crowns and our trophies down. We will lay them down at his feet when we see him face to face and worship him forever. Amen. Dear God, we praise you for this message of uh, Peter and help us to be safe and secure in Jesus, our gospel ark. Amen.